greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zaffaro, and this is the feature episode for May 2020. Uh, and we're going to be talking to Robin Burcell. Uh, Robin's a pretty cool person uh, that I'm very glad I got a chance to meet, and she's had a very diverse background and a pretty cool writing career that we're going to talk about. So uh, you can look forward to that. Uh, I am coming at you, as always, from uh, the headquarters of Wrong Place Right Crime here in Central Oregon, where it's been raining like it's Seattle or something for the last few days. I don't know what's going on. Usually it's high desert year-round, so that's interesting. Uh, Still cooped up, still under quarantine, although there's been a little bit of uh, relaxing of standards uh, uh, as people kind of tentatively inch their way back towards some sense of normal life. So I hope that that continues. Now is a great time to be catching up on your reading, though. If you have, uh, haven't burned through your entire to-be-read list, then uh, uh, keep on burning. Uh, and if you run out, you can always get more from Down and Out Books, which uh, coincidentally is the sponsor of this particular podcast. And here from Down and Out Books, to clue you in on to what's new in the month of May, is Lance Wright. Hi, Frank, and thanks for having me. This month, we're publishing the latest in the Penns River crime series by Dana King, Pushing Water. This is the fifth book in the series and has received praise from former police officers for its authentic voice. Also this month is Cold Water, a new crime thriller by Tom Pitts that Matthew McBride called the author's best yet. And we're also thrilled to be reissuing the Gus Dury crime novels by Tony Black. The first of which, Paying For It, introduces readers to the former journalist turned investigator in modern day Edinburgh. The rest of the series will be coming out every other month this year. Well, cool. Um, I actually got a chance to read an advanced copy of uh, Dana's book. Um, Big fan of his series. And uh, Tom Pitt sent me his book, too. And uh, I'm going to have him on the show here uh, shortly. Uh, Just finished reading Cold Water. Well, glad to hear it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, if you haven't heard of Robin Bursell, uh then uh, you probably haven't been paying attention to Clive Kessler books because she is one of his co-authors. Uh, but she has a pretty long career uh, of writing her own books as well uh, and a law enforcement career uh, to boot. And so uh, this episode, if it sounds like a couple of retired cops uh, having a drink, uh, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of how it felt for me too. Uh, so uh, let's let's get to our interview with Robin Bursell. Well, hey, Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I've wanted to have you on the show ever since I met you in person, which I'm pretty sure the first time was at uh, Left Coast Crime in Vancouver. Really? I think so. I feel so. like we've known each other for longer than that. We, I, I think we've known each other online oh, there you for go. quite Maybe some time, yeah. and that is the first time we met. So I felt like I felt like I already knew you. And no, was it there or was it Thriller Fest? Uh, it wouldn't have been no, Thriller Fest. I don't. Vancouver. Yeah, I don't go to Thriller Fest. So all I remember was, that, and I think the reason why I'm thinking Thriller Fest, which is held in uh, at the Hyatt in New York, in Grand Central, it is there, there's an upstairs bar that's really cold and i remember being really cold in this upstairs <laughs> upstairs bar where we were sitting yeah it was nice but it so, was a little chilly uh, yes yes it was uh, so sp- yeah no spring in vancouver right. it was it was yes <laughs> it was vancouver that's where we first met and and uh, it was a lot of fun so. well and isn't that just the way of the world these days is that you you have these virtual acquaintanceships or even they develop into friendships and yet you may never have met in person for the first several years and before you finally actually meet in person. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I would have to say the internet has absolutely changed. Um, it's, it's made the world a much smaller place, which is really quite wonderful when you think about it. It is. It's really cool. It's just, uh, you know, I mean, you and I are of a, a similar age or at least a generation for sure. And I think... Wait, was that generation or degeneration? Because considering <laughs> our law enforcement backgrounds, I think either works. <laughs> I, I guess uh, that was the other thing that occurred to me was that cops tend to bond pretty quickly, even if they haven't yeah. known each other before. <laughs> but if you had told either one of us, I think when we were 10, 12, 15, 20 years old that 
that this sort of thing would be the case that you'd know somebody virtually for years and then meet in person. We'd think it was crazy. No, we'd think we were watching a Star Trek episode. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah it wasn't that crazy. I was a Trekkie yeah. from way back, so I was yeah. I was good. Uh, so was I. I grew up on it. Uh, in fact, Captain Kirk was my leadership model when I first got promoted to sergeant. So, <laughs> oh well, there you go. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I mentioned law enforcement people bond pretty quickly, and you that evening when we when we met we had a, a nice group there and i was very entertained and enlightened by some of your background which is pretty interesting i think most people outside of law enforcement would find it pretty interesting uh, and the thing that struck me uh, initially was that you were the first woman hired as a patrol officer as a police officer for your department correct correct my badge said police man on it so that was uh, pretty interesting. I wore that badge for months before they finally ordered new badges. Or it did, actually, it said patrol man. That's what it was, patrol man. And they finally ordered new badges that said police officer. And they had to do that because of me. So <laughs> there you go. What are some of the uh, things that you encountered that people would be surprised about? Oh, my gosh, we don't have enough time for that. <laughs> what are some uh, of the know, highlights? Just, yeah, some of the highlights. I can do the highlights. Let's see. My locker room was a converted storeroom. And so they they threw in a, a row of lockers uh, dividing half the storeroom. So the other half was still storeroom. And there was a little bathroom in there with a little shower. They said, look, you know, you can use this. And and so my locker, I had I was the only one who used this, this locker room. It was, you know, like. 12 lockers in a row and then mine was on the end so I had mine right next to the my own private bathroom or so I thought one day I'm in there getting ready you know putting my uniform on and and uh the the door opens and all of a sudden one of the guys is looking in as I'm he kind of comes around the corner is like oh sorry I didn't see you there and um with him is a uh drug addict and the the, the guys used this bathroom to take their their arrestees in to do a pee test to see if they were, you know, on drugs. It was the the probation officers or whoever, you know, they <laughs> bring them down the stairs and, and trot them right through my, and I'm like, whoa, this is going to stop now. <laughs> I marched upstairs and I said, yeah, I am not sharing a toilet, you know, with, with because it's like, this is the toilet that I sit on. <laughs> and yeah. You're going to make me share it with these drug addicts who are sitting on the same toilet? Uh, no. So it was... <laughs> You know, these things didn't happen all at once. It was like as we ran into situations, mm. they had to be changed because of me. And, you know, sometimes I would try and live with it for a while. I didn't want to be the one who complained and, and you know, I didn't want to be that girl. Um, but sometimes I had to be that girl. You know, I had to I had to be the squeaky wheel or it wasn't mm. going to get changed. So... Well, anytime you're a, a I mean, a, a, whoever goes first has it the hardest, right? I mean, the trailblazer yes, is the one yeah. that endures a lot of the stuff. Exactly. And I mean, I, I, I know the you of my police department um, and talking to her, some of the things that, that she dealt with, not all of them malicious or mean, just like things people never thought about because it had been such a Yeah, yeah. You know, profession. guys trying to be funny and then all of a sudden, you know, looking back years later, it's like, I guess that wasn't that funny, was it? And I'm like, no, it really wasn't. And what was the nice thing, though, is that at the time, there was there was a lot of times when I was close to tears or times when I actually did cry. I, I wore my heart my sleeve and, and I cried easy. But, um, you know, there, there were times when, when uh, you know, it really hurt my feelings, but I kind of, you know, put my chin up and tried to blaze past it. And I would run into these officers years later, officers that I eventually became friends with. And and I think one of the most interesting things, it, it, let me tell you about my very first day. So the very first day, uh, I'm in uniform and, and the captains take me around introducing me to, you know, the various people who work in the department. And we walk into detectives and this guy in the back of the room stands up and he says, I'm not ready for women on patrol yet. And the captain's flustered, and I'm kind of flustered, and he drags me out of the room. He says, and over here we have, and takes me somewhere else. And so now, let's say after I get out of the academy, and now I'm with my field training officer, and he says, okay, it's time for you to introduce uh, uh, your new FTO. 
And so, you know, I pull up in this parking lot to meet him and I look and who is it but Mr. I'm not ready for women on patrol yet. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, I'm never going to pass this. And so um, now fast forward to about being off the training program and I'm on my own and I'm working graveyard as, as rookies tend to, you know, work mm-hmm. uh, forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um I'm in a conversation with Sky, who, you know, we ended up being, like I said, you know, pretty good friends. And, and there's nothing better to do on Graveyard than meet in a parking lot between whatever calls or something and, you know, shoot the breeze or whatever. And some guy from another department pulls up and uh, he was off duty and he saw us in black and white cars and, you know, kind of fairly small town of 60,000 people. Uh, you know, most of the cops know the other cops in the surrounding areas. And he said, we were talking about the new seatbelt law. And he said, so, uh, you know, what do you think of that? Now, mind you, one of my patrol officers said, told me, I never wear a seatbelt because um, I don't want it to get caught in the gear. And so me being the girl, it's like, oh, okay, I don't want it to get caught in my gear. I'm going to be like the guys, you know, like my FTO. So I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. But I'm also a law-abiding citizen. And then I told them, I said, well, I wear it religiously in my personal car. And Dan, this this um, field training officer, Mr. I'm not ready for women on patrol guy, he looks at me and he says, Robert, he says, how long are you in your personal car for? And I said, 15 minutes to and fro, back, you know, back and forth from work. And he says, and how long are you in your patrol car for? And I said, 10 hours. And he says, and which one do you think you're going to probably be in an accident in? And, you know, it's like, ding, 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 the light bulb. And so I immediately buckled up. Literally a week later, I'm in a high-speed pursuit with another officer. Um, some Somebody comes racing out of a liquor store at 3 o'clock, or it was one of these 24-hour stores, a.m., p.m., you know, 3 o'clock in the morning and just goes, you know, ripping out. We don't know if the store's been robbed. And, and um, so uh, this officer goes chasing after, and I'm the backup officer, and we end up, you know, racing through town, lights, sirens blaring, and, you know, everything. And we end up on the freeway, 105 miles an hour, and the suspect crashes into another car, a sheriff's deputy's car, who came in to help with the, the chase. And um, Deputies always the, screw everything up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so the, the the officer in front of me, he manages to veer out of control, but I am literally like, you know, I'm heading straight for this crashed car now. And the, the thought, is, you know, when they talk about your life flashing before your eyes, well, not quite that, but what did flash into my head at that moment as I'm hurtling 105 miles an hour into this car is, is my seatbelt on? Yes, thank you, God, and crash. And so literally this Mr. I'm not ready for women on patrol yet saved my life. Because a week before, I had not been wearing seatbelts. So, um, you know, I ran into him, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years after I had retired. We ran into each other in Costco, and we're kind of chatting. And then I said, you know, I said, I talk about you a lot. And he says, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, well, I like to tell <laughs> stories about, you know, when we first met. And he actually apologized to me for that remark about uh 15 years later, you know, we were walking to lunch. We were both on the hostage negotiation team together, and we were walking to lunch on one of the training days. And he says, do you remember that remark I made back when we first met? And it's like, "Uh, duh, (laughs) how could I forget? (laughs) And uh, he says, well, I just wanted to apologize. You know, you're a very fine officer. So I told him about this remark, and he said, oh, God. He said, you know, I, I, I can't believe I said that. And I said, well, no, I said and he said, so you're, you're telling this story? And I said, yes. I said, but I'm also telling the story about how you saved my life. And he said, what are you talking about? And of course, he doesn't remember this conversation because mm-hmm. it didn't impact his life mm-hmm. like it impacted my life. Yeah. So which is a long way of saying that sometimes we can laugh now or we can, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes we say and do things that just, you know, we don't realize how they hurt other people or impact them and yeah, that first laugh is usually at the expense of someone. It's mean. It's it's you know yes. uh, not good. And then later on, it's not funny because we're looking at it through these more woke eyes, if you want to use terminology uh, right. that's right. popular now. And then after yes. a little while, then it you can laugh at it almost nostalgically, like oh, how are we so stupid? I'm glad we're past that. So it's an right. interesting. Yeah, but I mean, it takes decades for that whole. It, it does. And yeah, this was not an overnight process. And there's still, you know, there's, there's still things that I think about that, um, to this day, 
you know, I'm either very, very mad about or still hurt my feelings. But mostly it's the ones that I'm really mad about, which I can allow, you know, and I've told you some of them. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's women like you uh, with of your generation who I think I think I was in the, the generation of cops uh, that came after right after you, because I think the, the my peers that were female, they were still dealing with a bunch of crap and no question. It was a different, it was a different experience. And and I try to capture that in, in my books and, and, and be fair about it and, and, and so forth. But their lot was easier because of the people that went before and uh, uh, that, you know, so I, I, you know, I think that there's a debt of thanks there that, that, that is owed to, you know, to the previous generation. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's my editorial. Um, let's get back yeah, to something more interesting. <laughs> and that is, you mentioned that you were on hostage. And so um, that is not an experience I had in my career. Um, uh, hostage fell under my command when I was the SWAT commander. And, and so I got to be, you know, kind of tangentially uh, around it and learn about it. And it was very fascinating. Uh, but I was never an operator. That's a very... Boy, talk about a very particular set of uh, skill set, which, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious to me why you would be good at it. But uh, how was your experience? So what did you like about being on, uh, on HNT? Um, well, because it sounded really cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> ooh, I'm going to be a hostage negotiator. Um, it, it was one of those jobs that, you, you know, when, like I said, it did. It really sounded cool. It's like, yeah, I'd like to do that. And you go through the training and, and, you know, you hear the war stories and you do the exercises. And it's not until you're actually involved in a situation, you know, a hostage situation or any kind of negotiation that, that you realize, oh my gosh, this is like, this is real. This is, you know, it's always something that happens to somebody else up until that moment, you know, that you've, you've, you've heard about, you've read about, you've read a, maybe a fictionalized version, but when it's that real moment where, you know, somebody's life is at stake, be it yours or somebody else's, it, it, it sort of changes things. And police officers are very familiar with this. Uh, you revert in times of, of stress and trouble, you revert to how you're trained Mm-hmm. which is so very true, especially mm-hmm. in those situations. And you find your uh, yourself, you know, thinking about the, the next step as, as the, the, the suspect, if you will, or the hostage taker, depending on um, what the situation is. You know, as, as they're speaking, you know, you're, it's like you're playing chess a little bit and, and you're, you're trying to decide the, the next play to get him to move in the direction you want him to move mm-hmm. and all the time maintaining, it's almost like having this, this interview we're doing now. It's like <laughs> you're talking and I'm, I'm trying to think ahead about what I'm going to say while I'm trying to listen. And, and uh, I found the whole process fascinating. Um, it's, it's very interesting looking back that trying to remember the feeling that you have as your, your heart's kind of racing in your chest. So, What's that saying where, you know, be like a duck where on the top you're calm and the feet are moving like man under the water? That's kind of what it's like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, There's always a pretty healthy, um, friendly rivalry between SWAT and hostage and that, uh, you know, hostage always seemed to think that, you know, SWAT just wanted to kick a door and play with their toys and, you know, and SWAT figured that hostage just wanted to basically you know, talk the suspect to death, you know, and so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was always, as a commander, uh, you, you know, I always had to manage those competing interests. And, and of course, the the uh, recommendations that you're getting were very much in line with those philosophies. <laughs> <laughs> on your on your website, it says you did criminal investigation, too. I mean, is that a fancy way of saying that you were a detective or is that? Yeah, yeah. Um, up in uh, Sacramento, when I left Lodi, I went to work for Sacramento County. And, you know, I, I decided that, yeah, I want one of these uh, desk jobs, you know. <laughs> Cushy desk uh, yeah, yeah, Soft clothes, day shift. Yeah, yeah. And I ended up missing patrol more than I could even say. But, um, you know, I was a detective in Lodi, of course. Uh, but then I went back to patrol. And, and I think I was lured by the, the dollar signs and the, you know, steady Quality Monday through stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. Daytime, you know, hours, whatnot. I, if I could do it all over again, I'd stay on patrol, really. Well, different um, agencies do it differently. I know that in my agency, uh, it was a promotion and, and it was a permanent position, essentially. Um, but a lot of agencies, they they rotate their, their yeah, patrol Yeah, a lot of was a rotate. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, I didn't want to wait for rotation back in. So I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to uh, go up there. But plus it was uh, criminal investigator in Sacramento is a fancy term for um, DA investigator. So oh. uh, I was, that's what I was doing up there. So a lot of your, you were investigating things that were fairly cold at the, by the time you got them because the case had yeah, been well, sent to the prosecutor. Actually, I was in, I was in the um, very exciting world as a DA investigator uh, investigating welfare fraud. <laughs> so there were um, not highly active cases where, you know, you're looking at dead bodies and stuff. Mm-hmm. DA investigator sounds really cool because, you know, those are the ones out there cleaning up mm-hmm. the, the messes for the DAs. It's like, yeah, you know, they should have invented... Uh, question this guy or that guy in some murder case or whatever Mm -hmm. but really it's any case that's going to go to trial it's the uh you know it seems to me i think the da investigators are the ones who are in in many of the cases that come through the police department that land on the da's the district attorney's office for anybody who doesn't know what a da is most everybody does right you know so they're out there i remember being really annoyed with all the da investigators that ended up coming to my department you know on some big case that i had worked and wanted me to do this or that and say, what, what? (laughs) So, um, but welfare fraud was different because you actually started those investigations. Oh, okay. And, you know, most of them were routine, you know, it was somebody's $15,000. They never prosecuted anything under 15,000 where, you know, they were working a job and collecting welfare and didn't report that they were working a job. So therefore, obviously they were getting money they shouldn't. But the cases that I think were, were far more important those because those were usually just people trying to get by and it's like oh my gosh you know i'm actually i've actually got some some grocery money or something um which is really hard to prosecute in my opinion i mean really hard for me to work because i feel sorry for those people they're they're trying to make ends meet those were not the people that i went after the people that to me were far more important were the ones who they were running these scams i this the last case i actually worked was this woman who uh, it was like a hundred thousand dollar case by the, you know, and this was not her first time either. She'd gotten popped before, and you know, the, she was in Fresno, and then she moved to Sacramento. So by the time I got her, her scam was, she had uh, children, and so she, um, the state will pay you to go to school or or work, um, and they will pay your babysitter, so which is a good thing, right? Unless of course you know it's not really going on, so. She listed her brother as her babysitter. And that's, I think, where the state went wrong. You know, if if it was maybe, I'm sure there's plenty of legitimate people who are paying a legitimate relative who are really watching their children. But in her case, she was paying her dead brother who she was, she had been paying him even before he died. He was actually a prisoner in a, a state prison down in Fresno. And then he died. And when he died, she she switched over and started paying her uh, her cousin. And that's cousin in quotes because it was really her. And she had gotten another driver's license when she was a little kid. Her parents had somehow managed to get all her their kids two Social Security numbers. So she had two legit Thank Social God, Security it's generational. numbers. Yes. <laughs> and she just kind of spelled the name like her... I'm not even going to go into the names, but um, she spelled it differently. And then she had a legit social security number. So she was paying herself to watch her own kids while she went to work. And obviously she was not watching her kids. And I don't know who was watching her kids, but. um, (laughs) Those are the kind of cases that people use uh, to beat up, you know, the legitimate, you know, purpose for, for, for state assistance. Like it's. Well, exactly. You know, and that's. That's what I think the people legitimately get upset about when it comes to welfare is that, uh, you know, if, if, if the people who legitimately needed it got it and used it, you know, to tide them over till they got back to work, yes, nobody has a problem with that. It's people like this woman who are scamming, you know, and, and I, I get so fired up at this because... Not only is she scamming the welfare system, but, you know, the the babysitting money, a lot of people don't realize 
that money comes from the Department of Education. Oh my so, god! So literally, makes some sense though if you backtrack yes. and think about why it would. Yeah. Yes, and so mm-hmm. you know, so I have my daughter's a teacher, my husband mm-hmm. is a retired teacher, but you know, and they're. Uh, you know, they, they don't have enough money yeah. for books and, yeah. and fines. And mm-hmm. ah, anyway, yeah, let's talk about something far better. Okay. Than, yeah. <laughs> I hear you, though. My wife's a teacher and, you know, the, the tax allowance for what she spends in her classroom is about 1% of what she actually spends of her own money. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we have been talking for a while and we haven't gotten to your books yet. And I want to get to those. Uh, I just want to touch on one more thing that it, I thought was interesting before we do. And that is that you have listed... Uh, as part of your law enforcement experience that you are an FBI trained forensic artist. So what, maybe you can tell me what that is exactly. If somebody, let's say somebody robs a bank and you're a witness at the bank and, and for some reason, you know, how the cameras are always up way up high and the guy's got a cowboy hat or a baseball cap on. And, you know, the only person who sees his face is, is somebody, you know, somebody standing off to the side I would be the one who would sit down and um, help that person put that face on paper, mm-hmm. so that were his cheeks that. fuller, was his nose longer, yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. So basically, uh, you know, you've probably seen them on TV. Yeah, everybody's seen one of these sketch, sketch artists on the paper, mm-hmm. right? Sketch artists. And so on TV, you know, it's like the, the person will be drawing. You know, that the, they'll have they'll bring the artist in and, and literally have a drawing in about five minutes. Does he look like this? Why, yes, that's him. And, and, <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. So what, what it is, is you sit down with somebody and it's a two, three hour process because you need to, you know, get them in a relaxed state. This is person might have been a victim of a violent crime mm-hmm. or witnessed a violent crime. And they're usually pretty emotionally wrought, you know, just overwrought. Um, so you, you need to get them calm and then you need to talk about the crime. And especially, let's say a, a woman just was raped or maybe witnessed the murder of, of somebody. Mm-hmm. And in this type of interview, what's called cognitive interview, you need to actually walk them back to the moment of the crime because the last thing they really want to see is the face of the person yeah. that committed this crime. And so it's you have to be very empathetic. And you know this is also the hostage negotiation training. I think why they thought I would be a good negotiator is because I could already do this with the, with the sketches. And so I would have to tell them, I, I know you don't want to look at this, but I need you to see, you know, is, does a person look something like this? Um, you know, and you're showing them this face on, on paper. And I was actually pretty good at it. Um, I would say I had a, a high percentage of, of what I would call hits where you you get a picture of the suspect and then you'd look at the sketch and go, whoa, yeah, definitely. It looks like the guy. But interestingly, the questions... I usually got from the people when they'd, they'd sit down to do a, a, a sketch with me was what if you guys arrest the wrong guy and what if it doesn't look anything like him and what if, you know, all these what mm-hmm. ifs. They're legitimately worried about, you know, their part in this this process. And what I tell people is that the sketch is not used to identify, it's used to eliminate. So obviously if I'm doing a sketch of somebody with a, a long, narrow face and... Uh, you run into Clemenza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, then then we can safely eliminate everybody with big, wide, round faces because they are not this guy. So we can eliminate all those suspects from the equation and narrow our, our suspect pool to anybody who has a long, narrow face. So... Um, you know, it's a, it's a tool. It's a, a tool to help in, in investigations. And sometimes the tools, you know, are able to be utilized very well. And other times it's like, well, that one, you know, was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for the hundreds of sketches that I've done, quite often we never we never get a suspect. You know, there's no arrest made. So we have no idea how close they are or not. But for the ones that there's actually arrest, a, a higher percentage of mine looked like Enough where you could not eliminate this this arrestee as as a potential suspect in in this case. We actually had one where um, we had a cat burglar turned rapist uh, in our town, and he by this point raped about four uh, women, and we kind of connected him to these burglars. Um, because a a couple of them got interrupted on. So we figured those were probably attempts, but something 
happened where, you know, the, the rape part didn't happen. And we had a daytime burglary that uh, occurred and the, the captain had gone back and walked back into the jail to take a look at this because he happened to know uh, the, the, the victim. They said, yeah, hey, we, we caught this guy, you know, in so-and-so's backyard. And he goes, I know that person. So he goes walking back into the jail to look at the suspect and he gets back there and he comes back and he says, Robin, he says, that guy kind of looks like your, your sketch of the, the rapist. So I walk back there and look at him. And like I said, I could not eliminate the suspect based on my sketch. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like it was a twin or anything, but it was like, oh, you could, you know, you could definitely see, see this relation. So the next step then was to determine if he was a suspect. And unfortunately, out of all these rape cases that we had, we only had one where there was any prints and we sent them into the FBI and they came back no hits. So um, I also happen to be a fingerprint expert, ta-da! <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, small department, we all have to cross-train. So I took the, the suspect's prints and I uh, sat down with the, the, this one print on this, when I was a detective back then, um, on my uh, rape case and matched it up to the guy's pinky. And if you recall back then, um, the FBI, you know, all the stuff was entered by hand. There was none of this digital anything back then, right? And it was the like the Dewey Decimal system of, of fingerprints that they. So it was pre-automation days. So back in those days, though, um, it was like the the warehouse on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, or the first one, you know, where they moved the Ark into the big warehouse that goes back forever. Well, that was the fingerprint file, you know. So they had all these fingerprints on file. And they use this sort of Dewey Decimal System. I wish I could remember the name of it. And I know that when you and I hear it, you go, oh, yeah. And, you know, they would have to hand file, you know, look up these things based on the points. So because most crimes were committed with, you know, either the thumb and the, you know, index finger, um, they decided pinkies weren't important and it took up valuable space. So they did not include the pinky fingers in this file system. They just didn't file them at all, and they weren't included in the point system. So, uh, you know, it happened to be this guy's pinky on this woman's windowsill, and that's how we solved all these cases based on the fact that my sketch looked like the suspect. We were not able to eliminate him. To, you know, it's sort of a chain, chain link event thing. There you have it. <laughs> We'll get back to our conversation with Robin in just a few moments, but this is the time of the show that I like to turn over to the experts. And by experts, uh, I mean uh, bookstore owners or other purveyors of mystery. Uh, And more recently, I've been uh, turning to prior guests to make book recommendations uh, since... uh, uh, writers tend to also be voracious readers. They tend to have a pretty good view of what's good. So in this episode, we are going to hear from Chris Radigan, Brenda Chapman, James Latwell, and Paul Marks. Take it away, folks. Hi, this is Chris Radigan. I'm the publisher of All Due Respect Books, a fiction editor. I would like to recommend Your House Will Pay by Steph Cha. Um, I read this book recently, and it's, it was a big deal last year for, uh, for a lot of different reasons. It's a book that deals with race in an, in an interesting way and um, also talks about uh, the city of Los Angeles, um, which has been done to death, but in this case uh, is done very well. And it's like a really vital Los Angeles book. And so yeah, I'd recommend um, your house will pay by Steph Chow. Really, really excellent, interesting read. Hi, it's Brenda Chapman. I'm a crime fiction writer of the Stonechild and Rillo police procedural series, uh, writing in Ottawa, Canada. A book I would highly recommend that I read recently is Denise Mina's uh, 2019, I believe, book, Conviction. Uh, Conviction is a standalone, and it tells the story of a woman named uh, Anna McDonald who has a secret past. She's living the uh, suburban housewife life, Uh, but one morning she gets up, her husband comes downstairs and tells her he's leaving. He's uh, moving in with her best friend, and uh, she's leaving her husband, and uh, 
somehow the news shows up and she gets um, on the, the uh, TV news, uh, Anna, uh, and then her past comes up to uh, uh, into a big crime thing. So it's, it's really interesting, really well written. It's original, unique uh, writing style, how she set it up. So I would highly recommend that book. Hi, this is James Latwell, author of the John Fanley series, and I have some book recommendations for you. Um, the Hidden Things by Jamie Mason, uh, Ain't Nobody Nobody by Heather Harper Ellett, and Three Fifths by John Vircher. Uh, three different, very different books, but uh, you can't go wrong with any of them. Hi, this is Paul D. Marks, author of White Heat and uh, The Blues Don't Care. I'd like to recommend Reed Farrell Coleman's books, the Gus Murphy series. Um, I just read them. They're both terrific, and I wish there was a third one coming. Uh, there you are, some uh, great recommendations there. Uh, a couple of them that I have not gotten to yet that I am intending to get to. Uh, the Jamie Mason one in particular is, is high on my to-get-to list here. Uh, but now, let's uh, get back to our conversation uh, with Robin Bursell and actually talk about her books. Well, so we're talking about like almost 30 years of law enforcement experience, uh, and then you become the uh, female answer to to Joseph Wambaugh, basically, uh, with quite a few books. <laughs> and, and here we are well, well into well, the program and we haven't talked about your books yet. I know, which is kind of funny. You mentioned Joseph Wambaugh. Um, I had uh, one reviewer who, who said, if Mary Higgins Clark and, and Joseph Wambaugh had a love child, Robin Purcell would be it because of my the, the, the style of books that I was writing at the time. So, yes, I had always wanted to be a writer. And... Uh, and my first book came out in 1995. It was a time travel book about a policewoman who goes back in time and falls in love with this, you know, handsome duke and whatnot and serves a, a murder in both time spans. Uh, so that was 1995, When Midnight Comes. And I don't talk about that book because it's a, a steamy romance and it kind of doesn't go with the, you know, the thrillers that I write now. They're sort of, you know, one of these things is not like the other thing. <laughs> so... Um, I tried to write another romance and I just couldn't, um, I kept, you know, murdering, everybody was getting murdered, you know, there was, and somebody finally said, shouldn't you be writing police procedurals or something? And I said, I don't want to write police procedurals. I said, I go to work and deal with police procedure all day. Last thing I want to do is come home and write about this stuff. But Somebody said, well, read Patricia Cornwell. I think, you know, you should be writing kind of what she writes. And I read, uh, what was the first one that came out? Uh, Body of Evidence, I think. And I read that. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, I need to start writing police procedurals. And so then I uh, started uh, Every Move She Makes was in the Kate Gillespie San Francisco PD series. And that first book came out in um, 1999, I think it was. So, uh, so that's when I started my mystery writing career. And there are four books in that series. Um, it, it did pretty well. Uh, they were nominated and won the Anthony Awards from Bautricon. They've been nominated for McCavities and uh, Barry Award winner, you know. So it did pretty well. And then uh, this, the series ended. So I did four books. And then I started the Sidney Fitzpatrick FBI Forensic Artist Series. And the reason why I switched over was because, you know, I found out once you start writing, you start discovering there's like tax advantages of, of certain things, you know, you can write off research and whatnot. And the Kate Gillespie series was San Francisco PD. So I could write off any trip to San Francisco and I thought... <laughs> boy, wouldn't it be cool if I was writing like an international series and I could like write off a trip to Europe? <laughs> so, and it's not like you get to write it off, but you know how the taxing works. It's like you spend, you know, $5,000 on a trip to Europe, you get to write off $500, but hey, $500 is $500, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I uh, made the Sidney Fitzpatrick International 
you know, she gets, she, she works for the FBI. She's a forensic artist, but she gets involved in this international conspiracy theory, you know, stuff that works great for fiction. And, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed that series and I did five, five books in that series. It started with Face of a Killer. And in that one, the protagonist, Sydney uh, Fitzpatrick, she, um, it's an anniversary. Her father was murdered probably 20 something years before she was 13 years old, he was the owner of a, a pizza parlor and somebody murdered him, burnt you know, the pizza parlor down. And, and she was kind of a semi witness to it. She was asleep in the room when she was about 13 years old. And so on the anniversary of her father's death, it, it comes out that the, the suspect that they had arrested and, and uh, he had the burn marks, you know, the, there's video of him climbing out the window. She decides she's going to go interview him and she, because she wants to know, why he did it. He's always denied doing it. And, but, you know, like I said, video evidence, come on. So she goes there to uh, San Quentin and he's on death row. And she says, you know, why'd you do it? And he again professes his innocence. And then he says something to her that all of a sudden brings her up short. He, he tells her this one thing that her father used to say that all of a sudden makes her doubt everything she's ever known about this case. And he's going to be executed in 11 days. So she has 11 days to prove whether or not he is innocent or guilty. Because if he is, um, you know, if he's guilty, she's going to flip that switch himself, you know, herself. She's going <laughs> to she's gonna watch him die. But if he's not guilty, not only are they going to kill the wrong man, but that means that the killer is still out there. So that's and the case is closed, if you guys. Yes. The case. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, nobody's going to go after it anymore. So um, she has 11 days to, to solve this crime. And uh, um, so that one actually did really well. It got a starred review from Library Journal and, you know, really decent review from Publishers Weekly. And, and uh, there's five books in that series and it's international intrigue, you know, FBI forensic artists and whatnot. So, that, you know, there's always some sort of a sketch or something in the book. And really beautiful, really beautiful colors to our well, covers colors too. Yeah. 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 Covers really with good done. colors. Yes. That, yeah. You know. Well, and all of them feature, um, you know, a, a silhouette or a, or a shot of, of the protagonist on them, it looks like. And, and they're just, they're really, really. Yeah. They tried to brand them. They tried to brand them. Those, mm -hmm. those came out from Harper Collins and I thought they did a really good job. Yeah. I think so too. So, um, and I really enjoyed that series. And then, um, I wrote uh, one police procedural for, uh, it's called Brash Books, uh, Lee Goldberg, who, uh, writer who does the, uh, he used to write the Monk books and he's written a lot of TV mm. shows and whatnot. And he started this little publishing company bringing all these out of print books. And he bought the rights to Carolyn Weston's series, three book series that came out in the 70s. And these books were the basis for the Streets of San Francisco TV show. Mm -hmm. Walter, and he's like, you know, uh, well, Matt that was in that one? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And um, so he said, you know, it would be really cool if you could continue this on and, and you should write like the next book. Well, you know, it was the 70s. And as you know, in the, the 70s, police work was quite a bit different than, you know, they, they wanted to beat a confession out of somebody. Nobody blinked twice. It was like there was... Well, he was guilty. Not he just all. had to get him. To it, right, right. Yeah, guilty. Just beat snot out of him again to confess and you know, call it a day. So I'm reading these books, and, and sure enough, she's got them acting like they would act in the 70s. And I said, I said, Lee, I can't write this. I said, I, I, I couldn't in all good conscience have these good guys beating confessions out of bad guys because that is not supposed to happen. I, I am not that kind of, you know, <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I just couldn't do it. So I said, I'm going to update it. So we made it modern day and moved it to San Francisco because surprisingly, even though these books were the basis for the streets of San Francisco, they took place in Santa Monica. So I don't know anything about Santa Monica. So I said, San doesn't, Francisco doesn't strike do. me as a place where the cops beat people up regularly though. Well, apparently they did. So <laughs> at least in her books they did. So I changed it to a, um, a San Francisco and, and that was the book was called the last good place. That's the one that I wrote. And, and you modernized uh, I, it, you said. When did yes, you Yes, I modernized it? it. I moved it to present day because hmm. I, I, I don't know the first thing about 1970s uh, police work, but I could do today. So that's what I did. And 
So I was, you know, trying to think of the plot for the next one when I got this this call from Clive Cussler, who was looking for a co-author for the uh, Sam and Remy Fargo treasure hunting series and wanted to know if I'd be interested in continuing on this series. So it was one of these moments where, let me think about that. Uh, <laughs> wait, when do you want me to? Um, yeah, that was a really hard offer to refuse. You know, it's like the the... Yeah, definitely a hard offer to refuse. He made me an office offer I couldn't refuse. Well, so, I think when um, a lot of people, are, you know, are aware that you have that in your in your repertoire, that and and did he ever say what was it that caused him to to choose to reach out to you? Because you know, honestly, he he probably had his you know pick of the uh, uh, you know of all the bells at the ball, and he he asked you to dance. So I yeah was yeah it? exactly. Well, I was wondering the same thing myself because after I finished this this phone call. I'm thinking, okay, who do I know who who might have, you know, put my name out there? Because uh, out of all the, yeah, all the bells in the mall, um, what is it, all the all the gin joints, you know? Um, <laughs> it's got to be the guy who stood up and said, I'm not ready for women in law enforcement. <laughs> right, right. right? <laughs> uh, well, no, it actually turns out it was um, po- the Poison Pen bookstore, Barbara Peters. Oh. Um, yes, she, he, he knew her personally because you know they live in the same town and he's done many you know a book signing at her store and I'd done you know my share of signings there and I knew her from various conferences and and um, but she also had uh, read my books and she'd actually HarperCollins was my my main publisher but she asked me one day how come Harper's never brought you out in hardcover and I said well you know I don't know. I can't answer that. But she she said, you know, well, tell them if they don't, I will. And so I happened to mention this to my agent at the time. And uh, she said, you know, I'm going to just sort of mention that to them. And and they said, well, sure, why not? Let her. And so Barbara, you know, was involved in uh, Face of a Killer and The Bone Chamber. She put them out in a limited edition library edition, I guess you might even call it or something, you know, hardcovers. And so she was very familiar with my work. And so when Clive came to her and and said, um, hey, I'm looking for somebody, she suggested my name. She dropped my name. Well, it took him a couple authors to get to me because he was reluctant to hire a woman. It's kind of like that, you know, hey, I'm the first female police officer in Lorraine. I'm the first female co-writer with Clive Kessler. Um, he was hesitant because he was thinking about his readers and he just wasn't sure. But one of the qualities he was looking for and that he was having a hard time finding after the, their, their first writer, uh, who did three books, and then there were two other writers that followed, that he wanted somebody who could write strong women and strong men equally. And he was not finding that balance with the the, previ- the, the two writers who preceded me beyond the initial writer, um, which was uh, Grant Blackwood, I think. And so, you know, I, and I'm not sure why Grant left after three books. And as you know, he co-writes with other big names and is, is a big name in, on his own. So, but Barbara said, you want somebody who can write strong women and strong men, uh, strong men, that would be Robin. And, and uh, so... Uh, he read my books and called me up one day and he said, do you think you'd like to do it? And he flew me out to Arizona and wine to dine me for, you know, uh, many days. And when we talked about books and plots and whatnot to see if we could even work together. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty exciting time because you're sitting there thinking, you know, you're, you're sitting across this table in this restaurant with this legend. Yes, a legend, exactly. The Grand Master of Adventure with a bottle of Opus One wine on the table. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, this is a whole different world. Um, and trying not to be like, I really wanted to hand my camera to the waiter. <laughs> I said, could you take a picture of us? Because I'm thinking, even if I don't get the job, I'm sitting at the same table with Clive Kessler <laughs> with a bottle of Opus One sitting between us. I just want a picture of this. And uh, you're, you're an applicant and a fangirl at the same time. Oh yeah, a- a- absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, but he, you know, one of the things that he told me 
that I found interesting. This was in our initial phone call when he was kind of testing the waters to see, you know, if this would work. He said, it's not like writing mystery novels. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, come on, how different could it be? You know, a good book's a good book. It's not that big. And he was absolutely right. It's just, it's not anything like it. And, and you know, it took me a couple books to hit my stride with him. So, um, And you've written five with him, right? Five. Our, our fifth one, The Wrath of Poseidon, is coming out this May, May 26th, I think. So, um, yes, just, five books. Just, just a few days from when, the, from when this podcast drops. Oh, well, perfect then. Perfect timing. Um, but, of course, this book will be uh, somewhat bittersweet because it we literally had just finished putting this book to bed, you know, wrapping it up for the publisher, making the final edits. And as you know, um, last month, it was February 23rd, I think, you know. 24th, I believe. February, yeah, that that Clyde passed away. And, and, you know, when I got the phone call, um, you know, it broke my heart. So I, so so this book is going going to be The Wrath of Poseidon, a, a very bittersweet moment in that it is our, our last one that we actually physically worked together on. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for all the time I had with him. I learned so much. He's an, an amazing writer. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how, you know, what's going to happen at this point uh, with the series, with any of the series. Uh, you know, I, I'm hoping they'll continue on because, you know, he and I discussed that what the next book was going to be like and where we were going to go. And now... Now there's this, you know, this, this, mm-hmm. yeah, broken heart. A lot of his fans are, are, are just devastated. There's a lot of people um, who, you know, they just, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't even know how to describe that, the feeling of what it's like to, to not have him in this world because he, he was, I think he might've been 89. I remember going to his 85th birthday party in Arizona and uh, even though I, I knew he was up there in years, I just felt like he was always going to be there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Just, of course, it's hard course. to imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean, he in the world of in the world of fictional adventure writing, I mean, he was you know massive icon, and so it's yeah. You know, there's definitely a, a hole in that part of the universe that uh, is you know will, will take a long time to even partially fill. I believe. Yes, yes. It kind of reminds me when you mentioned that, the, the line from Star Wars, uh, I think Obi-Wan Kenobi said it, something about the, or maybe when Obi-Wan died, I, I can't remember. Do you remember that that line about this, something in the Force being missing? Why can't I remember that? Anyways, um, but yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Well, you know, on a slightly lighter note, I guess, uh, you know, it's a collaboration and I've collaborated with authors before too. So, you know, I mean, I know that the, the, some of the things that go on, but uh, in my instances, uh, those collaborations were essentially 50, 50 collaborations across the boards. I mean, you, you know, you each had your strengths and your weaknesses and knowledge that you brought to the table, but it was pretty much a 50, 50 proposition in each of those cases. And yours was a little bit of a different scenario though, because you're talking about an established series and a, and a, you know, a triple a writer, in, in terms of his, you know, people, household name, essentially, people who don't read Clyde yes. or know who he is. And yeah. so, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be insulting, but it, you came into it a little bit as the junior partner. I oh, yes. Imagine. Yeah, I was absolutely the junior partner. And So what was the dynamic like there? I mean, I know there's an NDA in place, and so you can feel free not to answer anything that you don't feel yeah, comfortable yeah. answering. Uh, but, but there's a dynamic that might be a little bit different than if, you know, two authors of essentially equal experience and stature were collaborating. Oh, absolutely. I, and I'm not sure um, how the other author, the other co-authors felt, uh, the, the ones who were currently on his, his team, um, the same time I was. But, you know, let, let me just kind of describe what, what would go on. It's like, I would fly to Arizona, and we would sit around, and he'd say, uh, you know, I want to do a book on the Fabergé eggs, or, or he wanted to do um, what was the, the book, uh, The Great Ghost. He wanted to do a book on um, the Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow, the one that's, uh, you know, the, the first one. 
And he says, I want this to be stolen. He says, I think it'd be really cool if it's stolen, like right in front of people's eyes. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know. So then we would talk about it and we'd kind of like bat things together back and forth. And then I'd go home and I'd kind of start putting some ideas on paper and then I'd, you know, send it off to him and he'd kind of do his magic and, and we would go back and forth. Um, but I think what was absolutely the, the best part of the process was, was not just doing the story ideas, but it was, believe it or not, when, when what I did didn't work because he would say, you know, I think you need to come out here. We, we need to fix this. <laughs> and so I'd fly back out to Arizona and, and um, he would tell me, you know, and it, it hurt because I'd sit there and I'd, I'd be looking at this, this, this work that I'd done that I think is, you know, pretty darn good. And he'd say, this is just not working. <laughs> or, or he'd say, this sucks. <laughs> and I'd say, oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh, no, you know, and I mean, the first time that happened, I was, there were tears in my eyes because I really wanted this to work. And, you know, you don't know if there's going to, going to be a second book. And, and as I mentioned before, I wear my heart on my sleeve and, and I put my heart and soul into this and this is not working. But remember what he said about this not being like a mystery and, and he was right. And so, you know, I had to take off my, my police hat and, and put on my, I'm learning from Clive Cussler hat. Which and, is probably a you know, fedora. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and and really listen to him as to why this is not working. And But the majority of time, while we are doing this, you know, we're sitting on his patio in his very beautiful paradise-like backyard and drinking wine <laughs> and just yes. having a great time and and you know we so we bat things you know well what if we did this and what if we did that and and it was just an amazing time I mean it's almost like you know when you were talking about how much fun we had up in that that bar talking about mm -hmm. war stories it's yeah. exactly like that but mm -hmm. with fiction so mm -hmm. um and then every now and then he'd talk about you know his his stories of you know, the things he did back in his advertising days and, and whatnot. And and, um, and that was a lot of fun. But I, I would often come up with some something that I thought was a great idea. Oh, my gosh, he's going to love this idea. And he's saying, no, no. He says, I did that back in, you know, such and such a book. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, how does he remember <laughs> this stuff? So I can't remember what I did from one book ago. So um, he's got a lot more books, you know. I think at, at that point, you know, 80 something books out. So how he remembers these things, I, 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 I can't tell you. So, uh, but Sounds it was like just you developed quite a, quite a, uh, a great relationship though. Oh, absolutely. You know, it was, it was wonderful. I would, uh, go over there and, and, uh, you know, he has, uh, the, the backyard was amazing. I'm going to do kind of a, if you can picture you're sitting on the patio and this is Arizona, you know, where it's like a hundred and something, 150 degrees or something, you know, in the summertime. <laughs> and, and quite often I would end up there in the summer. So, you know, you sit on the patio and he, he designed the, the, the backyard, the landscaping, and, and he decorated the inside of the house all on his own. And you can tell his imagination from this. Um, it's just an amazing place. So he designed this pool. It's a circle. And in the circle, there's this little bridge that, you know, you go up these steps and you end up on this, this, the Ramada where there's like a outdoor, uh, there's, there's a little fireplace and a barbecue and a, a tables, you know, and chairs. So you could, you know, have this, um, amazing little barbecue by the fire on the cool nights, obviously not for the big hot summer nights. So you're looking at this and there's, you know, the Bougainville with the bright pink flowers. Um, and you know, the, the, just, amazing and then so if you were to walk along the pool toward the left um, there's this little building sitting there and this is his office that he designed and built and you walk in and and these big beautiful wooden heavy doors into this room where he has his desk and his computer and all his books and you walk in there and you sit down on the other side of his desk while you're you know working and you get to see the authors that he's read and and you know, my books were on his shelf, which is very exciting. Now, maybe oh, wow. he was just putting them there to, you know, 
make me feel good. But I, my I doubt it. He said it. He read them oh. to pick. You know, he picked you because he read them. <laughs> well, so, true, true, yeah. right? And my book sitting next to James Rollins, whatever his latest book was out. It's like oh, this is so exciting, you know. So, yeah. uh, and then. But if you came out of the office and you went or followed the pool around again to the left, there's this little casita. Um, it was a little, like a studio apartment. So there was a little kitchen in there and, and a, a bed and a little closet and a little bathroom and shower and whatnot. And that's where I would stay. So it was like being in your own little place, you know, in your own mm -hmm. privacy. And I would work in there. And, you know, in the mornings, you go out and we'd have breakfast on the patio and, Half the time I was in there, you know, helping his wife cook or, you know, cleaning up or whatever. And, and you know, just kind of making yourself at home. It's like you're basically family. Right. Right. And and I felt like family. They made me feel like family. And and, and that was, I think, the most wonderful part about it. Um, and, and, of course, I think what I'm going to miss more than anything is, is being a part of that family. And, you know, just I'm, I'm going to miss them terribly. Well, and you know, I mean, I, I get it's no replacement for the you know, the person, but you, you know, you do have five books there that will endure and that will, you know, be a testament to that relationship. So, I mean, there, there's a positive, I guess. Yes, yes, I absolutely. I will always have those those memories, and and uh, you know, I think of uh, one of the the books, the first book he sent me, and what he'd written in it is just. I think always going to be uh, close to my heart. So yeah, I will always have that. Absolutely right. Well, I, I don't want to end on a somber note. So I want to ask you, um, aside from, from those co-written, uh, the co-written series, uh, what's, what's next for you? Are, are you going back to Sidney Fitzpatrick or possibly another Kate uh, Gillespie or what, you know, what, what do you have going on? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm officially in between projects. I actually, was asked by the family to continue on with uh, the Sam and Remy Fargo series. And so I'm hoping that will will come to be, um, as you know, and I'm sure everybody else will know, but, you know, who knows how long this, this podcast will be out there in the in cyberspace. Um, but we're in the middle of this pandemic. Um, so New York has shut down and uh, nothing's happening right now. So... I'm not really sure what's going to happen on, on that end. But I do have, as, as you probably do, you know, books that we've started and, and put aside for various reasons. So, you know, I have one that's this mystery that I just love. And then I have another one that's this, uh, like a full-on historical romance that, because, well, you know, I started writing romance in the beginning. And this is, this is you know, back in 1812 or something like that. And, and. I guess maybe because the world is such a horrible place right now, you know, I mean, we feel like we're living in the, the middle of a the zombie apocalypse movie or something like that. I just didn't feel like I could pull out a, a mystery and death. And I thought, Oh, maybe I'll pull out this romance and dust it off and see what happens. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what that's. I mean, Christy, she, we bought a year long subscription to the Disney Channel for essentially that same reason. You know, is that yeah, she wants yeah. to watch happy stuff in the midst of all yeah. this. Uh, as we're recording this in the middle of April, you know, we're we're still locked down and and yes. the pandemic is going on, and so people are, are are in the middle of a difficult time, and they don't necessarily want to read dark books, which doesn't bode well for me. <laughs> No, no, yeah. But, uh, well, but you, you could pick up a romance and start writing it, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, and, and whether I do or whether I, you know, I mean, because by the time any of these books that we write come out, you know, this should hopefully all be behind us. And and I, I expect it to be. But um, I think it's because we're we're in the middle of it right now that it's hard for us to, to think about that moment. Mm -hmm. So um, because, you know, you, you put a book out, it's you finish writing it, it's literally a year to 18 months later uh, that any book is going to actually hit the shelves. So is the romance a good idea or should I get back to that mystery, you know, which is probably a better idea. Career I think you should write things. what makes you happy. That's my advice. Yes, I think, you know, you're absolutely right, Frank. I should. And and we'll see. We'll see what happens. So we'll see uh, what happens when I get my, my drink 
five o'clock somewhere. And, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> and how I'm yeah. feeling it. <laughs> In vino veritas, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Robin, I've been wanting to get you on the show, like I said, since we uh, talked to, in Vancouver. And uh, you've certainly lived up to your billing. I really appreciate uh, the time we've had. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wish you well on your next project. Thanks for coming <gasps> Thank on the show. Thank you very much. And it was such a pleasure. I hope I uh, didn't talk your ear off quite you know, <laughs> the very purpose of this podcast is for you to talk my ear off. So that <laughs> oh, good, good, okay, because you know I can do that well. <laughs> At least according to my husband. So um, <laughs> it's probably a good thing I'm a writer. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, Robin Burcell, that is the real Robin Burcell. She's the same way off air, off away from the public, just a very vivacious uh, person and uh, fun to be around and uh, has had some interesting experiences in the law enforcement world and in the writing world. I'm glad I finally got her on the show. And I'll be very glad when uh, the conferences start happening again and I can uh, uh, raise a glass with her. I will be raising a glass, metaphorically speaking, uh, with Reed Farrell Coleman on our next episode. Uh, Reed is another individual that I've uh, known online but actually met for the first time at a conference. And uh, it was at uh, BoucherCon last year. Uh, and uh, talked to him about coming coming on the show. And uh, here, here we go. Eight months later, it finally happens. So uh, next episode will be Reed Farrell Coleman. Uh, on the Frank Zafiro front, uh, nothing happening in May, but uh, June is right around the corner, and that is going to be a big month uh, on the first episode 12 of A Grifter's Song. Down Comes the Night will drop, uh, and that's the season finale. And then later on the 20th of that month, you will get uh, Never the Crime, which is the second book in the Charlie 316 series, the continuing saga of Tyler Garrett. Uh, later this summer, uh, the sixth book in the River City uh, series, Place of Wrath and Tears, will come out uh, August 12th. Uh, so a lot happening this summer. Uh, I'd like to say thanks to Robin for coming on the show, Lance for uh, uh, letting us know about some great books from a great sponsor, uh, all of those uh, authors who were kind enough to pass on some great recommendations. And most of all to you, the listener, thanks for being here. Thanks for firing up this podcast and giving it a listen. And uh, please check out the uh, books of Robin Burcell. And if any of those that were recommended uh, catch your fancy, try those out as well. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.